Listener Production. On the evening of August the 8th, 2018, Jared Lyle passed away after giving it his all, fighting leukaemia for a third time. He is survived by his amazing wife, Brioni, and his beautiful daughters, Lucy, age six, and Gemma, age two. This interview was recorded in March 2017. Parts of it were used on a different project. A lot of it hasn't been heard. We've decided, with Brioni's blessing, to release the full interview so you can truly understand what a spectacular man, a spectacular man, Jared Lyle was. Over his journey, Jared has been supported by and in turn supported a wonderful charity called Challenge, which supports children and families battling cancer. Please go to challenge.org.au to give them your support. Alternatively, there is a GoFundMe page to help support Jared's girls' future education. Simply search GoFundMe and Jared Lyle. Thanks. Jared Lyle was a son, he was a brother, a father, a husband and a mate, a really good mate to many people. He was a golfer, he was a prankster, he was a ripper, quick with a smile, fond of a beer and really, really warm to everyone he met. This is Jared's story. Rest easy, great man. Oh, Jared Lyle, welcome to the Howie Games, mate. It is great to see you. Um, here in Torquay, nice and close for me. Life looks pretty good, mate. Yeah, mate, we've got a nice little spot down here. And, you know, although the weather has sort of turned for the worst today, it's been perfect down here. And, mate, it's a good spot to just come and unwind. This is going to be an interesting chat because your five-year-old is outside doing her jigsaw. Your little baby has just been put down. So this could be an interesting discussion. Yes, I think it will be. I think uh, <laughs> old Eagle is over here. She's checking everything out, making sure it's going to plan. And as long as Gemma sleeps, mate, we'll get through this thing pretty quickly. I was trying to think about it the first time I came across you. And I, I was thinking back to like the Moona Classic. We would have had it at Channel 10, I don't know, sort of mid-2005, 2006. Um, and you're always a laugh on the golf course. That's what I remember about you, playing golf. You're always one of those blokes we'd say, oh, who are we going to chat to? Oh, let's have a chat to Jared. He's played pretty well today and he'll, he'll have a good chat to us. Yeah, mate. Let's, you know, I've always been that way. I've always been that, that kind of guy that doesn't take it too seriously. Like I, I get frustrated if I don't play well. I mm. sort of, you know, I'm, I'm out there trying to play the best that I can. But, you know, whether I'm shooting 65 or 85, there's, there's really no difference in my demeanour on the golf course. And I think that's what sort of helped through my career too, sort yeah. of to have that that level head all the way through it and sort of you can know when you sort of take the piss out of yourself a little yeah, bit yeah, as yeah. well. And and I do that pretty well. And, you know, I... I guess that's that's been sort of the secret to my, my golfing career and life in general. Oh, it's full credit because I, I, people often say to me, oh, you know, tell me about certain athletes. And I always say, listen, Craig Lowndes is the one athlete that I've dealt with that he gets out of his car and he comes up to an interview. And if you hadn't watched the race, you will not know if he's come first or last because he's the same all the time. He's got a smile on his face. And that sort of the rate relates back to you. Like, you know, you come into the scorer's hut and if I didn't know what you'd shot, I wouldn't have a clue from your demeanour, which is... Must be a great help on the golf course as well as all the other things going on, I guess. Yeah, it is because you know you you can get very emotional on a golf course. You can sort mm. of if you're playing well, you know you, everything's running high and and you feel like nothing can go wrong. But then on the flip side, if you're playing bad, mate, everything can everything that goes wrong can go wrong. You know, you hit a perfect drive yeah. and you've just hit it three hundred and it's you know it's ideal and it's in a divot. You know, and, and things like that. So you, you kind of you can't let things get to you too badly. And and I think you know having a level head out there is is the key to, to playing well on a regular basis. So where did this uh, love of the game of golf start? You grew up in Shepparton? Yeah, I grew up in Shep. So I used to go out with Dad every weekend. and What did your old man do? 
Dad was an accountant, so right. he worked for the Shepherd News. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was their group finance manager and all that. So, um, you know, he wouldn't wouldn't spend a lot of time out in the golf course during the week, but every Saturday he'd be out there playing and he'd play with the same guys. And my grandma or his mum used to sit under a tree at the back of the eighth tee and, and <laughs> I used to go and caddy up, you know, the first seven holes and then I'd sit with, with grandma under the tree and have a Coke and a Mars bar and then... The 15th came right back around past the 8th tee. So when dad came around to 15 and I'd pick up the bag again and caddy 16, 17, 18, <laughs> he'd go in and rehydrate and uh, I'd take his clubs out and go play, you know, three holes at Shep. So 10, 11, 12 and 1, 2, 3 all sort of are near the clubhouse and they all sort of come back to the clubhouse. So, you know, each week I'd sort of alternate and go 1, 2, 3 and then I'd play 10, 11, 12 the week after. So. And were you good from a young age? Like, can you remember a shot as a young bloke where it was, you know what it's like, you hit a golf ball, whether it's in the air for the first time or whatever, and it's like, this is cool? Yeah, I I don't remember, you know, a lot about early golf. I remember going out with Dad and playing and, you know, my first set was like a five seven nine iron and a (laughs) a four wood and this kind of deal. But there was one shot that really stood out years ago was when – I was looking at becoming a member at Shep. They didn't allow you to become a member until you, I think, twelve or thirteen. And yep. and in order to do that, you actually had to go and play with the, the captain of the golf course. Ooh. So the captain of the golf course lived about four doors up from us in in our street in, in Shepherd, and, and and we knew him really well. He'd come around most Saturday nights, or we'd go there for a barbecue and all that. So we'd spend a lot of time together. He knew how I was as a person, and knew that I wasn't going to go out there and trash the golf course. But mm-hmm. he said, "No, we still need to." you know, have a game of golf. So we teed off a 10th hole and we got around to 15. And I remember hitting it in the right-hand trees. And I was sort of behind all these big pines and I thought, oh, yeah, I'll just pull driver out off the deck out of the trees and mm. hit this cut shot around. And like, I had to cut it about 40 yards and yep. keep it under the trees on the left. And, and it ran up onto the green to about 15 feet. And I remember Bruce Wall was his name, the captain. He sort of turned around to Dad and he goes, Jared's right. Right, so that was so, the moment, and that was that was a shot. That driver off the deck. That's a shot that my old man's taught me years ago, and and you know to pull it out at that time and and hit the you know, possibly the best shot I've ever hit <laughs> as a twelve year old or thirteen year old was was quite incredible. And you know once Bruce had seen that shot, he goes, "He's fine, mate. He can come and play whenever he wants." And you're obviously at school at this stage. How's school going for you? An academic type? Or you'll sit at the back of the class. What style operator was Jared yeah, Lyle up no, there, shepherding no. away? Jared was always at the back of the class, mate. <laughs> right. He was always leaning back on his chair and staring out the window, sort of wishing he was out there doing something else other than schoolwork. So, right. you know, I was smart enough that I, you know, could get through school, but I just hated being inside, and I still hate being inside. Yeah, yeah, I can see that about you. So when did golf become something where, you know, it's like when other kids start saying, oh, he's good, you know, watch out for Jared Lyle from Shepparton or whatever it may be. It happens in all sports. When did you start to get an idea that you're probably better than the average kid at golf? I guess for me it was probably when I was about 17. Um, you know, I'd, I'd moved – I hadn't moved from Shepparton, but I'd moved my golf sort of down to, to Melbourne and was playing pennant and got asked to come and play for Commonwealth. So I'd sort of moved everything – my focus was now to to come down to Melbourne and play as much as I can in Melbourne and in tournaments and all that kind of deal. So it was it was probably later than the average, you know, good golfer that gets around that, yep. you know, I sort of blossomed a little bit and um you know, I came down and and started playing pennant from about a seventeen year old in Melbourne. So that was kind of the the point where I thought, you know, I could try and 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 do this for a job and, and try and get 
professional and, and sort of travel the world and all that. But So that, that was a thought in your mind? This is what I could do? I could yeah. make money playing golf? Yeah. Better than you know, I was Mate, I used to play cricket Saturday mornings and then golf Saturday afternoons. And, you know, if I wasn't batting, I hated cricket. Mm. You know, because I was either wicket-keeping, which was all right, or I was down at fine leg, which, you know, you field a ball every 20-odd yep. and, you know, you got to sort of run around and catch the one that the – yeah, the wicket keepers missed, and you got to try and stop that going for four and all that. So Co- compare was, yourself to a modern day batsman who's playing for Australia at the moment. What style of operator were you? I was, I was like a boonie. Oh, boonie! Yeah, like on the cans as well. Oh, <laughs> mate, I could, I could have been on the cans. <laughs> <laughs> but no, look, I think you know, I was, I was always an opening batter. Yep. So I was always a good batter. Terrible bowler. Right. I remember yep, bowling this pie or this one kid, and my, my coach of the team. Uh, one of my best mates, Daddy, said, oh, Jared, you can have a bowl. And I'm yelling from the middle, no, don't put me on, don't put me on. He goes, no, no, we need to try something. And the first ball was just this perfect half volley that went straight back over my head and went up into the uh, the commentator's hut at a football oval. Okay. And I said to my coach, yelled from the middle, I said, that's why I told you I don't want a bowl. <laughs> so batting was always, you know, the thing that I loved doing. And, and if I wasn't batting, I hated cricket. And then I'd go and play golf in the afternoon. So it was... A very sporty weekend for me. So you're at 17, and people that, that don't know your story are going to be um, they're going to start falling off their chairs when we get into this story. But I guess 17 is probably the age where you probably first got crook, was it? Yep. Yeah. Mate. So I say crook, but you probably need to explain that a touch more. Uh, well, you could say it was crook with cancer. Right. So I had um, got diagnosed with uh, acute myeloid leukemia. So how, how does that come to pass? Like, um, I have no experience in this area, so I'm just going to ask you: Do you start feeling crook, mate, or you start yeah, look, unwell? At, or? at that time, um, I'd been away playing golf, like state secondary school stuff, and and things like. That. And I wasn't feeling 100. percent Like I felt like I was sort of getting the flu. And, you know, I was in year 12 and I'd been doing a lot of homework and I'd been travelling a little bit with golf. So I was trying to, you know, catch up with everything else and, and make sure that I was on top of it because I knew I had another golf thing coming up and <clears throat> and all that. So it was it was just like a flu-like kind of thing. And then I was playing footy with my mates at school and copped an elbow in my chest and woke up the next morning and I had this bruise that pretty much covered half my chest. And I thought, oh, it doesn't really look that good, mm. you know, and... I hopped out of the car that morning to go to school and I got halfway across the road and just felt horrendous. So I turned around and luckily mum was still there and I jumped back in the car and I said, look, I've got to go to the doctors. I think something's wrong. I'm just not right. And we went to the doctors, had some blood tests and I remember going and sitting around at Nan and Pa's house in there, in Nan's rocking chair, which he still got, <laughs> and uh, just sat there and went home after lunch and then, you know, I got the phone call. It was probably about 4.30 from uh, the pennant manager at Commonwealth saying, oh, we've just promoted you to the senior team for, for pennant. Um, I'd only played one game in the, in the, the minors and and uh, I thought, oh, yeah, how good's this? You know, I've got a few days to get myself ready to, you know, hopefully get better to, uh, to go to Melbourne and play pennant. And um, literally half an hour after I got that phone call, my doctor, said, my doctor called and said, oh, look, you've got to go to Melbourne. We think you've got cancer. And my first response was, no, no, I've got pennant on Sunday. <laughs> I can't, I can't go into hospital. I've got pennant on Sunday. I've just been in the, been put in the senior team. Let me play one game, and then we'll deal with it after that. But unfortunately, I uh, had to miss out on pennant and, and go into hospital and have some tests the next morning, and pretty much started me chemo straight away. So, as a seventeen-year-old, can you tell us, mate, the effect that that had on you being told that, and now that you're a parent, 
you wouldn't think it at the time because you weren't a parent, but now you are. What that was like for your parents? Yeah, look, I think, you know, and and all the way through that treatment and my, my second lot of treatment, the, yeah. I honestly think it's harder for the parents and the, the family members and what it is on the actual patient because, you know, the patient's dealing with a fair bit of stuff going on. You know, they've got chemo going in, they feel, rab- feel rubbish, you know, you can't eat, can't drink, you're throwing up, you're just... Everything that can go wrong with you is going wrong with you. Mm. But as a sibling and as a as a parent, sitting there watching that, knowing that there's absolutely nothing you can do to make them feel better, has got to be the hardest thing in the world. Mm. And, you know, I can't imagine what it was like for my parents hearing that that news and and the unknown because it's not something you think about. You know, it's not something you think that if you, you feel like you're getting the flu, it's not something you feel like you're going to have cancer in the end of it. So I think... Um, you know, it's definitely harder on them and I couldn't imagine what they were going through and I couldn't imagine what, you know, the second time it came around, what my wife was feeling when, when we got the news again. So what is acute myeloid leukaemia? What does that mean? So leukaemia is just, it's literally a blood cancer. So your bone marrow and all that kind of stuff, it's, you know, it's all affected by, by the leukemic cells and, you know, things don't quite work, work right. So within your blood, you've got three different types. So you've got your red cells, your white cells, and, and things called platelets, which are the, the things that clot your blood if you cut yourself and mm-hmm. and all that. So a normal reading for a, a platelet count is like 180,000, 200,000. I had 6,000 when I was diagnosed. So, you know, hence the, the massive bruise that I had that it just wouldn't stop. Okay. There was nothing there to stop it from bleeding. So, so it affects you in different ways. Other people have really high... Uh, white cell counts, and some people have really low red cell counts. So it, it sort of affects you in different ways. And, and what is the chemotherapy? Like these are stupid questions because we hear these terms all the time. But what does chemotherapy do? It literally kills you from the inside out. Um, it kills all the bad stuff, but in killing the bad stuff, it also kills your good stuff too. So it literally wipes out. It wipes out your factory. So your bone marrow is essentially your mm. factory within your body and, and literally just wipes that, that all out. So, you know, you'd sit there and then all of a sudden your, your red cell count is way down so you've got to have a blood transfusion to to keep yourself going and, and things like that. And then you'll have to have platelet transfusions as well because they're dead, they're gone, you've got nothing left and, and if you don't have any platelets and you bleed, there's nothing to stop and you'll just keep bleeding. So you need to have all these, I guess, Band-Aids, I call them, you just got to have those little band-aids to keep yourself going. And those band-aids for me were, were blood transfusions. So how long is this process as a 17-year-old? How, how long are you in hospital for? Which hospital are you at? I was at uh, the Royal Children's. Right. Um, so I was in there on and off for about nine months. So I had six rounds of chemotherapy uh, as a 17-year-old. So I'd be in there for you know, up to a month at a time, three and a half weeks at a time because literally they, you come in, they hit you with the chemotherapy, everything drops down to, to zero. You have a few days at zero, you have your little band-aids and things like that to, to get you through and then your, your bone marrow sort of kicks in again and starts working. And once you've got everything needed to be at a safe level to be able to go home. So once you sort of got to that safe level, you could go home. But more often than not, you'd have a, a uh, an infection because you've got no immune system because mm-hmm. that's wiped out as well. So you get an infection, you'd have to come into hospital again have antibiotics, have all that kind of stuff. And then when that had passed and you didn't have a fever for, I think it was two days, mm-hmm. they could let you home again. So, And then it was literally, you know, you go home, 
stay home for a few days and then you have another blood test and if everything's at a level that they're happy with, they say, come back in, we'll hit you again. So it was just a, a constant thing for, for, for nine months. And is it this stage where you meet Robert Allenby? Yeah. yeah. During this period, it's, it's funny because um, I don't know Robert that well. Um, he's always been nice to me when I've been working at the golf. He's obviously, the last couple of years, he hasn't had the best media. Um, I, I presume you have a different opinion than what may be the opinion in public at the moment. He, he was pretty involved in your story, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. You know, he, he came in, it was... Because you were a golfer? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it all, it all came about through challenge. Um, Allenby's been a patron for Challenge for a long time, and and his golf day that he does that he's raised, I don't know how many millions, nearly of thirty million yeah, bucks now. So it's people need to keep that in the equation, I think, when they yeah. start having opinions on Robert Allenby. But I'm going off in a tangent there. <coughs> but um, you know, so he came in. I was in intensive care. Um, the CEO of Challenge, Dave Rogers, walked through the door and he goes, "Jared, I've got someone you want to meet." And and mate, I. At that time, I remember very clearly that I wasn't in the mood to meet anybody. Um, I had a pipe in my groin. There's a, a big um, artery that runs down your groin. I had a pipe in there. Then what they were doing was they was taking blood out of me, spinning it in machine, getting all these kind of stuff out of it, then pumping it back into me and all this. And I just wasn't – it wasn't the right setting to have anybody come in and, and mm. see you in that 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 spot. And um, he said, oh, no, I think you'll be – happy when this person walks in the door. I said, all right, Dave, no worries, mate. Bring him in. Who is it? And Allenby walks in. So you sort of sit there and, and he, he had a chat with me for about an hour in there and, you know, we just talked. I can't even remember what we spoke about. A lot of it was golf and, mm. and things like that and, you know, how how I was feeling and what I was up to and, you know, obviously the answer was not much. I'm just laying here. But, you know, he said, look, when you're better and when you're well enough to get out in the golf course, call me, let me know. And we'll go out for a game of golf, and and it took a while to, I guess, get get well enough to get back out on the golf course. But you know, I let him know, and I let Dave know that he can, you know, let Rob know that I'm well enough. And the next time he was in Australia, which wasn't that long after it, we were out at Capital playing golf. So <laughs> you know, so he's he's kind of, I guess, back then I considered him a friend. You know, when, when I was 17 and never met him before and he'd never met me, it was, mm. you know, I sort of considered him a friend because he gave me that kick that I needed to to sort of get out of there. And and um, when we were out on the golf course playing, it's it was just amazing. Like, it was like we'd been playing together for years. And, hmm. and then, you know, sort of fast forward 10 years and I'm back on the PGA, I'm out on the PGA Tour. <laughs> you know, he was the first person to say, do you want to have a practice round your first tournament? I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, that'd be awesome, you know, and go out there and play 18 holes with him at, at Sony Open, which is my first ever PGA event. And, you know, when I qualified for the British Open in 2006, um, he was the first guy to call me up and say, mate, do you want to have a practice round on, on Tuesday? Love to. Yeah. Yeah, I've never played a major. I don't know what it's all about. Mm. And and back then he was one of the, you know, top 15, top 20 guys in the world. And to have that guy to sort of look up to, at that time and, and sort of guide me through these these massive events that I'd never been a part of was was quite incredible and, you know, something that, you know, I'll remember those days for a long time. So now when, like, we read in the paper in this part of the world, you know, athletes or footballers or Justin Bieber or whoever goes and visits someone that's crook in the often in the Royal Children's Hospital and I'm sure you've done a lot of that now, it's amazing <laughs> the effect you or 
the captain of Hawthorne or whoever can have on people yeah. in that situation, isn't it? You must see that now. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, it's honestly, for me, mate, it, it's something that I, I struggle to do. Do you? I reckon since I got out of hospital as a, you know, as a 17-year-old, I think I've been into the hospital once to to visit the kids and, and Brioni, my wife, and I, we went in to, to do it on Christmas Day one one year. It was probably, we've been 2000 and... Christmas of 2010, I think it was, we did it mm. and I walked out of there I just cried mm. because it brought back so many memories of what I was like when I was in there. But, you know, seeing the smiles on these kids' faces that, you know, are unfortunately in hospital on Christmas Day with their family around there. But, you know, Dave from Challenge had sort of got Christmas lists from everybody and, and figured out what kids wanted and literally went and got everything that these kids wanted. Like, I remember delivering a swimming pool. <laughs> Good in, into one into one of the rooms of the hospital. This kid effort. felt he really wanted a swimming pool for home when he was well enough to get out of, out of hospital. So they went and found him this, you know, do-it-yourself swimming pool at home and took that in there and gave it to this kid and it was the best day of his life. And, you know, so to be able to go in there and do that, it, it takes a lot for me to do that and, and it's something I really struggle with because when I was in hospital, I was in a room of four beds and I was in there with kids that were 18 months old, four years old, 10 years old and and things like that. So the memories of, of seeing these kids that are at an age that don't understand what's happening to them and mm-hmm. here I am 17 and nearly a fully grown adult, it was it was pretty daunting. You know, when I walk through the door, people look at me and they're sort of staring up at the roof and, yeah. and things like that. But, you know, I'm sitting there trying to understand what these kids are feeling and what they're thinking every time they see a doctor coming at them with a needle and... And they're going to have their medicine and they're throwing up and they're just, you know, it was just a, a sad place to be. So the memories aren't real good for me and that's no. why I struggle to go in there and see them and, and visit everybody. So, mate, you, you get out of hospital. Um, obviously, as a young boy, you're thinking, right, I've got to get my golf game going again. Um, you found your way onto the USPGA Tour. So obviously along the way, you started playing some pretty good golf. Yeah. Yeah, I, did. I, I, I don't know what it was. I think it was the... The fact that I'd overcome something that a lot of people never get the chance to overcome and, and I sort of sat there and thought, well, I've just been given a gift to, <laughs> you know, get back out there and enjoy life and, and give everything the best that I can and and I did that and got to the best golfing tour in the world. So tell me, because, uh, you know, I've worked in a fair few golf tournaments and I get there and I see 120 blokes on the driving range and they're all hitting at 300 and they're all hitting it dead straight. And I think to myself, well, there's another 25 tournaments going on around the world. So there's a lot of blokes yeah. that are bloody good on the driving range. So when you say the world number one or the world number 20 or the world number 100, I, I find it an amazing thing. What's the key to being – let's talk sport. What's the key to being a good golfer, a professional golfer? Well, that's a tough question because, you, you know, you see guys that are good professional golfers mm. and they do things – in an ugly way, but they understand how to score. And right. I think that's that's probably the biggest point in professional golf compared to amateur golf is professionals know how to score. They know how to scrap something out and they don't make two mistakes in a row, whereas amateurs go out there and they'll <laughs> hit it in a bunker and they'll try and get too cute, they'll leave it in the bunker and then instead of going, okay, well, I've just done the stupidest thing in the world by leaving it in a bunker – they'll try that same shot again and still leave it in the bunker. So they're compounding a mistake, whereas professionals tend to not make – they don't compound mistakes. Right. 
we try not to. And, you know, if we hit a bad tee shot, you're in the trees and, you know, you'll see guys go for that miracle shot through gaps in, in the top of the trees and all that. Sometimes it's just as easy to chip it out sideways, get it on the green and, and hole a putt. So it's – I think that's that's the biggest key, mate, is you just – you don't compound the mistakes that you make. And you see it every time in pro-ams that you play with. You know, I've played, I don't know how many pro-ams around the world over the years, and you just sit back and you go, I could have saved you 15 shots today. How is a pro-am? This is for people that aren't aware that just amateurs come and get to play with the big boys in the lead-up to the tournament office, boss and stuff. What's it like when you get on the first, a day before a big tournament, two days before, and old mate doesn't get it past the ladies tee or just scrubs along the ground? you think, oh, jeez, he's going to be a long five hours here? Yeah. But the, th- the, the thing with me is if that guy doesn't get it past the first tee and he's embarrassed, I'll go over to him and I'll say, mate, don't worry about it. All right. You get 17 holes to fix that up. You're a good man. I said it's one shit shot. Who cares? Mm. You know, I've done that before. I've done that in the practice round at Pebble Beach where I've hit the tree off the tee and it's come back and finished at the front of the tee. And <laughs> my caddy took a photo of it and put it on Facebook and all kinds of stuff. So everyone knows that I didn't get past the ladies at Pebble. But, you know, they're difficult things to do mm. because I've played pro-ams in the States with guys that have never been on a golf course before. And, right. You know, and I, one quick story, mate. I played with a guy at uh, the John Deere tournament. Lost 22 golf balls in the first 17 holes. Never got on the green. Didn't Never pulled his putter out of the bag. Half the time he'd hit his tee shot in the trees and he wouldn't worry about it because there's anacondas and all this kind of stuff in the trees over there. So he wasn't too concerned about going in there looking for it. And we got to the 18th tee or our, our, our 18th hole, which is a ninth. Yeah. And I looked him square in the eyes and said, mate, you're putting on this hole. I said, I don't care how long it takes us to play this hole. I said, the other boys don't care. I've already had a chat to them about it. We want you to finish this hole. I said, and you're finishing it with the ball you started with. <laughs> and he's looked at me, he goes, you sure? I'm like, mate, we'll find it. Don't worry. We'll all get in there. We'll just we'll get <laughs> rattlesnake bites. We'll get all kinds of stuff. But we're fine on that golf ball. And he hits it in the trees off the tee. We take about seven minutes to find it. I throw it back out in the fairway. I thought, no, you can't hit it out of here. Bunts it down there, fats the next one, tops the next one, hits it back in the bush, I'll throw it back out. He's on the green for about seven. And as I said, mate, he hasn't pulled his putter out all day. He's had about seven or eight putts, walks off, and he goes, thanks, Jared. I had a great time. He said, sorry. And I said, mate, don't apologize. I said, mate, it's your first time on a golf course. I said, I wanted to make sure you had fun. Anyway, so we've gone in and had lunch, and we're sitting in there, and he's gone up to get his lunch, and he's, his boss, who played with us as well, he goes, thanks, mate. I said, what for? And he goes, he's just had the best day of his life. Yeah. Because of what you did on that last hole. And and it's one of those things. And <laughs> like, I've, I don't think I've ever played a good pro-am round before a tournament because my focus is more on the amateurs having a good day. I want to make sure that they're out there having fun because they're the guys that put money in our pockets. They do. They're guys that they might pay... You know, they might be guys from John Deere, which this tournament was. They might be guys from John Deere that put, you know, X amount of million dollars into the tour every year. Mm. And if they're not having a good day because of your selfishness out there and all that kind of stuff, then you're going to lose sponsors, you're going to lose tournaments and all that kind of deal. So it's – I don't have an issue on a Wednesday sort of sitting there going, oh, well, mate, it's just a pro-am for me. It's just a practice round. I'll go and hit a couple of putts over here. Don't worry about me as long as you guys are playing. And I'll read putts. I'll give them club selections. I'll do all kinds of stuff to help them out but I want them to have a good time. So it's – mate, I, I think that's probably one of the most important parts as a professional golfer, 
that we give back to the amateurs and give back to the sponsors and it's as simple as playing a pro-am and making sure they have a good day. So we see life as a professional golfer. We see Tiger or Spieth or Jason Day and we're thinking private jets, luxury hotels, et cetera, et cetera. Is that what it was like at your level on the PGA Tour? No. Okay, so describe to me what it's like being not the best player on the tour, being the 60th or the 80th or 110th ranked player on the US PGA Tour. Mate, for me, it was commercial flights every week. Right. And, you know, there'd be weeks where you'd be sitting at the airport for three hours because there's a storm come through and you're delayed and then you miss your connecting flights and then you've got to get a hotel in the next spot, wake up at four o'clock the next morning, get back to the airport and try and get another flight that day to get to the next event. Where's the private jets and the billion dollars and all the girls chasing you? When does that come into the story? Yeah, that didn't, uh, that didn't happen in my, <laughs> my little story, mate. But, right. but look, it's... That's the side of it that gets shown to everybody is the private jets. Yes. And, you know, you got these guys taking f- selfies on there with trophies and, you know, three other guys on the plane and caddies and all that kind of deal. But So that's not it? No. Oh. <laughs> no. It's, you know, when you're a small fish in a big pond like I was, yep. that stuff doesn't happen. You, you've got to get yourself around by yourself. And, you know, I can't tell you how many delayed flights I had, bags gone missing, you know, just, just little things like Travel that. stuff. That, if you were on your private jets, you wouldn't have to worry about it. Yeah. Because you literally, I've, I've been on a couple of private jets, don't get me wrong. Ooh. But you literally drive up to the side of the plane in your, your tournament car. Old mate gets your bags out of the, the back of your car, puts them on the plane, you go and sit on there. Someone drives your car away and takes it back to the tournament for you. That doesn't happen when you're flying commercially. Nah. You've literally got to you know, get yourself to the airport, drag your bags through, line up with all these other people. Like you do when you're flying. Mm. So it's... And then go and perform at an elite level yeah. with the bloke that's been on his private jet. Yeah. So, you know, my weeks were, you know, Mondays or Sunday nights, Mondays were always at the airport. Then Mondays you, you sort of rock up to the golf course, you register, you sort of you get your bearings, you do all that kind of stuff, and then you might go and hit some putts and some chips or you might go play a pro-am. And then Tuesday you practice, Wednesday you practice, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you play. Then you're either back at the airport Sunday night or Monday morning and you're off to the next week. And Do you have mental demons as a golfer? Because you see it. Like, how, how do you go when you're standing up on the practice driving range and Tiger's two down from you or Rory's a couple down from you and these are superstars? Let's be honest. They're, they're better golfers if they're playing their best than you are if you're best. That's oh, mate, for sure. That's, for sure. That's Even life, when they're it? swinging at the worst, they're probably still better yeah, right. golfers than I am. So, so How do you go about that? At first, it was very daunting, you know, standing on the range at, at Hawaii or at Palm Springs or at Torrey Pines, and you see these guys that you've been watching, you know, from the age of yeah. six or seven, you know, you'd sit up at the Masters and British Open and all that kind of stuff, and you'd watch it on TV, and you go, I hope one day I can do that. And then you find yourself in that situation, you find yourself playing with these guys that that you've been growing up watching and it's 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 the scariest concept in the world. Is it? You know, you stand <laughs> there and like the first couple of weeks I found myself watching guys on the range going, oh, that's Ernie Els. I used to play golf with him. And I remember when he came up and spoke to me at the Heineken in 2005 and, you know, and there's VJ Singh. This guy won 10 events last year and, you know, just, just little things like that. And yeah. you sort of – and then um, I was having a chat to a mate of mine at home and he – said to me, he goes, Jared, they're just another guy with a golf swing. And once I sort of that concept got into my head that they're just another guy with a golf swing, it was like, right, well, you're right. They do it better than I do. 
but I'm playing the same tournaments as them, so it must mean that I'm half decent and I can do this pretty well as well. So, you know, it was it was a scary thing to watch these guys play and, and do all that, but once you sort of got that out of your head and you, you went on to what you do best, mm. then you sort of – I felt like I belonged a little bit better. Who was the best you saw on your time there, US PGA Tour? <sighs> Mate, I, I always go back to a, a day I played with Louis Eustazen. Yeah, the South African. yeah. He swung it the best I've ever seen anyone swing it. Did everything. Everything just looked perfect. He shot 78 that day that I played with him. But everything he did looked unbelievable. And I'm just sort of sitting there going, this guy's got everything you need to be a world-class player. And, you know, went on not long after that and won the British. Have you played with Tiger or not? No. No. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. You know, I've always been – there's probably been five or six times where I've missed him by one group, either the group right. behind him or the group in front of him. Mm. And and I just don't know whether it was I wanted to do it or not because there's a whole lot of stuff that goes along with playing with Tiger. You know, right. the crowd moving and, you know, people sort of running from the groups behind and groups in front to get back to watch him hit shots. And mm. and so it was almost worse to be, to be either side of him because you always had those constant – Noises and people moving and absolutely things like that that, that tend to put golfers off. They don't really annoy me too much as long as they're not screaming in your backswing. Then they can move do whatever they want. But I think it was harder. But I, I would have loved the opportunity just to play a round of golf with him. Mm. That's you know that's one person that I think a lot of people have learnt a lot from him over the years. Yep. And I was hoping that one day I got to play with him. I've played with just about everyone else apart from Mickelson. I haven't played with Phil either. But all these other guys, you know, you sort of sit there and, and you watch them on the range. And, and I was the kind of guy that would watch and try and learn something from what they were doing, whether it was putting or chipping or, you know, hitting full shots or just watching and, and trying to pick things up as you go along. So, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from these guys without them really knowing that they've been, they've been teaching me. Holding once. Every amateur golfer wants to get a hole in one. How many have you had? I've had six now. So you can go and get six holy ones. How old were you when you had your first one? Uh, I would have been... It was 2004, so I would have been 23. Right, and where was that? Over in Wales. Wow. I was playing the Welsh stroke play. Right. And I had a hole in one on 17 and then eagled 18 to shoot five under. Did you win anything? Was no. it a car or anything? No? No, I've had six of them and won nothing for any one of them. What you have had, though, you've had one of the highlights... Have me watching golf. I don't know why I'm up in the middle of the night somewhere in a hotel watching the Phoenix Open, which has got that amazing party hole where people are allowed to get on the turps and have fun and enjoy themselves. Not like golf crowds. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe what the sport needs, but that's a discussion for another day. You step up on the tee there. You probably should take it over from here. It's one of my favourite memories in golf. Yeah, look, it was... You're in a big green shirt. Yeah, well, they, they have this green out. So Waste Management sponsor it, and they have this day where everyone tries to dress in green. They try and make it like a it's an environmentally friendly golf tournament. Well, you so, had the green down. Yeah, I wore the green. Looking back on it, the green was probably a bit tight. I, I think I might have stacked on a few kilos well, over the years. I but anyway, say, but it wasn't slimming. <laughs> it wasn't slimming. No, it wasn't my best outfit, but um, <laughs> I was in the, in the moment. And, uh, mate, I just stood up there and... I remember talking to McCaddy about it and I was kind of in between clubs and I thought, well, the last thing I want to do is hit it short to that flag. It's no good. So I took the club that was a little bit longer and didn't quite hit it as hard. And anyway, this thing came straight out of the middle of the club and as soon as it came off, I thought, oh, it's too far. It's going to be about 50 feet past. 
is Jared Lyle. It's an eight iron. I'm watching it in the air and I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm telling it to get down. I'm saying that I just think it's too long. And on the line it was, if it goes a little bit past that flag, it runs down the left-hand side and it's cactus. And I'm sort of going, nah, it's too long, it's too long. And then it lands. I thought, oh, that's actually all right. Takes a big bounce and sort of spins a little bit left on the second bounce and then disappears. Oh, the gal. And then for anyone that's actually seen the footage, I, mm. I carried on a fair bit. But you're going to have to tell me what you said. Well. And this is why I loved it so much, not well, so much about I've got, I've got my five-year-old about 10 feet from me. But I screamed out, you effing beauty. <laughs> <laughs> Great reaction. <laughs> now I'm real and Full volume. It was full volume. I had no idea. <laughs> I hadn't seen the camera that was about 10 feet to my right. But as I said it, I'm looking directly at the camera. And, mate, it was one of those moments that as an Aussie, there's no better term to scream that out than, exactly. than what I screamed out. And the funny thing is not one American knew exactly what I'd said. <laughs> I did but watch I, I remember getting a phone call the next morning from Andrew Gaze at SEN. Yeah. And before I went on the air with Gazy and... Mari. And Mari and Timmy Watson... Gazy picks the phone up and he goes, now, before we go on air, he goes, did you scream at UF and beauty? I'm like, yes, mate. And he goes, yes! <laughs> He's screaming in the studio and the boys are killing themselves laughing. And like I got messages from American guys going, one of my good mates over there, he goes, did you scream at let's party? <laughs> I'm like, no, nah, mate, no, nah, not even close. <laughs> so, look, it was it was one of those shots that you know, I'm going to remember for forever and – you know, it was to do it on that hole. Of all the holes in the world of golf that you choose it. to have a hole in one on, there's probably two. And one would be 16 at Augusta and one would yep. be 16 at Phoenix. And and I did it at Phoenix and there's nothing else in the golfing world that equates to what the feeling is walking onto that tee. You know, you can, I can only equate it to walking on the MCG grand final day. They're all drinking beers and there's music. From 8 o'clock in the morning with gates open, they're drinking. <laughs> Respect. You know, and... If you weren't playing, that's the place you'd want to be. <laughs> yeah. And the good thing is my old man was over for that tournament. So he went and sat up behind all the college kids on the left-hand side and he said, some of the stuff you hear up there before your tee shots and all that, he goes, it's just, it's mind-blowing. Right. These kids do homework on everybody and they, okay. they find out, you know, little things that no one else really knows but they can bring up and, and make you giggle and laugh on the tee. But he said when that shot went in the hole... He goes, mate, these kids went ballistic. <laughs> and everybody went ballistic. It was it was just the most amazing thing in the world. And, and the commentator, oh, the big guy. Yeah. <laughs> do that big fella, he screams yeah, out. That's him, do that so it was, mate, you watched it back many times. Nah, I've probably seen it. I think most of those views on YouTube are mine. <laughs> <laughs> just reliving the one good shot I've hit on the PGA Tour. So you uh, you won you won in Mexico? Yep. Um Amazing thing to beat 120 odd blokes in a game of golf, um, but then things don't go so well. I guess it was it straight after Mexico that he got crook again. Or? Yeah, yeah. So that was yeah the 2012. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the funny thing is, before I left 
to go back at the start of 2012. Mm. I was supposed to have a blood test Mm -hmm. and I just ran out of time and and couldn't get it done because I was getting everything else sorted out before I left. And and this thing, I just thought, I feel okay. It'll be fine. I'll I'll have one because I'm coming back in March because Bri was pregnant and and we were due to have Lucy on St. Paddy's Day in 2012. So, Can I just interrupt you there and ask you a really personal question? After going through leukaemia, etc., are they... Does that, in theory, affect your chance to become a dad? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so that was that was the one thing, you know, when I was sick in 99 that, yeah, I did ask that question. Right. And they said, look, chances are pretty slim because of what the chemo does to everything and and all that. And we just thought, well, if it happens, it happens. And, okay. you know, after a while, if nothing's happening, then we'll explore other options. And so Lucy was just kind of a a shot in the dark and... Literally. A bit of a miracle, yeah. Right. So you so your wife, Bryony? Yeah. Where'd you meet her? Uh, we actually went to high school together ah, in Shepparton. Oh, it's a tale of love. No, but we're in different circles, mate. Oh, okay. She was in the, the band and... Oh, she was the cool one. Yeah, she was the geek. Right. And I was the uh, I was the cool one. Oh, is that the I way you see the, it? Yeah. Uh, you were the she'll, golfer. She'll, yeah, she'll disagree okay. with that. Oh, but, I'm sure she would. I'm sure she would. But no, nah, look, we, we'd known each other for, for quite a while and, you know, after I got sick, we didn't see each other for about... I was probably about seven or eight years. And just the off chance, I was driving into Melbourne one day from we were living out in Oakley. And I was driving into into Melbourne and may have had a few beers after missing the cut at the Aussie Masters the day before may have. with my mates and thought, oh, I just need a bit of a bit of a drink. So I stopped in at a BP servo and she was working there and Really? Yeah. And did you move some smooth stuff out at that point? Or? No, mate, I obviously I wasn't feeling a hundred percent and Mine wasn't going at uh, at full capacity and didn't even give him a phone number or anything. Said that we'll catch up in Shep and right. got halfway into the city and I'm trying to realise, well, how, how are we going to catch up? Because I didn't even get a phone number or anything. Didn't even give her mine and mm. and all that. But she found me and, and uh, yeah, we just sort of caught up and went out for dinner in Shep and here we are. So here we are. We, we're not having time to get a blood test. Yeah, and... With the missus pregnant? <clears throat> so I thought, well, I'll just get it done when I come home. Three months, not going to worry. You know, I feel fine. Anyway, so after about two or three weeks in the States, I was starting to feel really tired. And I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. I'm, you know, I'm not usually tired after two or three weeks, but I had a stretch of seven weeks in a row that I was going to play and then go home. And there was seven in a row that I was going to do, and I'm sort of sitting there going, well, if I'm tired now, how am I going to get through it? So I sort of um, soldiered on, and then I got to Riviera, which was my fifth event in a row, and had my best ever finish on tour. Feeling not 100% the whole time, and, and played played well, and I finished fourth. How much did you win to finish fourth on USPJ Tour? Uh, that one was about 260-odd thousand. What's, I'm going to sidetrack you here. What's it like when all of a sudden that money goes into your account? Yeah, it's nice. Is it? Is it bizarre? <laughs> yeah. It is weird, yeah, because it's it's not something like that's my biggest check by a long way. It's a big check. It's a big and, check. You know, you sort of sit there and and you think to yourself that you know I just want a quarter of a million bucks yesterday, <laughs> and there it is sitting in my account on Wednesday, and you're like, that's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. You know, and the best thing was Dustin Johnson made bogey on the last hole and made me another forty or something thousand dollars as well. So God, you're you dusty. know, it's it's nice to be able to have that. <laughs> Repaid after I've made a few bogeys and made other people money yeah, and lost okay. money for myself, but but no, it was it's always a good feeling when it goes in there. But yeah, you know, going 
going from that tournament, I went down to Mexico the week after and I got this little thing on my – it was like a little mozzie bite on my, my left bicep and I'm sort of sitting there going, I don't, I don't know what this is. And I woke up the next morning, it was bigger than it was the day before and then it got to Wednesday and it was just like really inflamed and red and I thought, oh, it's obviously infected. So I went and saw this um, doctor they had at the golf course and – and he just put some cream on it and he goes, oh, this will get rid of it. I'm like, oh, okay. I no idea what the cream was. Mm. And then Friday afternoon comes by and I'd played in the morning and I can't straighten my left arm at all. Like I was, I could get to about, you know. And I'm sort of sitting there going, well, I need to get this looked at because it's, it's getting worse. Mm. So this doctor ended up grabbing a car and we drove to a hospital in Mexico not far from the course and we sat there for about three or four hours and – they pumped some antibiotics into me and they said, oh, I'll come back tomorrow and we'll give you another jab of this other stuff and we'll see how it sort of pans out. Anyway, so I get home and I'm doing my own sort of surgery on it. I'm getting a... Of course you are. You know, I'm getting a golf tee oh, and all oh, kinds of stuff and squeeze and pus and, oh, and all that stuff out of it. Golf tee. Because I needed... I, I couldn't straighten my arm and yeah. I needed two more days to play. Yeah. Anyway, so I ended up... I made the cut. Finished thirty odd or something that week, which was okay for not being able to really move my left arm too much. And I thought, right, so I made arrangements from when I landed in Orlando on the Monday morning after Mexico. I got my friend to drive me to the hospital, so she came to the airport, picked me up. Sorry, and she picked me up, and we drove straight to the hospital. And they cut it open, drained it out, gave me some antibiotics. And said, you need to come back tomorrow for some more, back to the hospital. So I said, mm-hmm. oh, no worries, I'll be here at 2 o'clock. And I still had to drive down to Palm um, Palm Beach to play the Honda. Yep. And I'm like, okay, so go back to the hospital, get me the other lot of antibiotics, and then hop in the car and drive down to Palm Beach straight after it. And I said, look, I've got to withdraw, I can't do it. They said you can't be, you can't really be outside with an open wound on your arm. I'm like, okay, so that you've tried to fix with a T, yeah, and various other utensils that I found. Um, so after having those antibiotics, I broke out in a rash, and obviously was, you know, allergic to it and wasn't going very well. So mm. I'd made plans in the last sort of day and a half to to go back to Australia early and see my doctor back in Shepparton and. So I changed my flight, flew back home, got picked up at the airport, drove back to, to Shep, went straight to the doctors, had some blood tests done, the tests that I was supposed to have before I left. And he called me about three hours later and said, mate, it's back. It's back. Yeah. You've got the same leukemia as what it was before, but a more aggressive strain of it. He goes, you, well, I've already made arrangements for you to go down to hospital in Melbourne and, and get started pretty much tomorrow. And I'm sort of sitting there and, you know, Brian and I were looking over wedding photos and all that kind of stuff that, you know, we only got married not even three months before all this was happened again. And and we're sitting there looking at all these photos and, you know, just reminiscing on what a good day it was and all that. And then you get this thrown at you and I literally, the good thing was I didn't have to unpack my suitcase. My suitcase was packed and I just chucked it in the back of the car and my dad and my brother-in-law took me back down to Melbourne and went straight in the hospital. So, What do you think when they said it's back when you heard those two words? I guess the first thought was that I've got another fight on my hands. Mm. 
But then all I could think about was, you know, Lucy was still in Bryce's tummy. I could. I was only thinking of, you know, the good stuff that has just happened and all this stuff I'm going to miss out on, you know. And the reality is I could die. I could die in three days. I could die in three weeks. I could die in a month. You know, no one knew. So it was bloody serious at this stage. Yeah. So we got down to the hospital and and luckily Bri had some kind of um, mentality going on at that, that time that I didn't have that she said, look, can we just hold on for a, a couple of days? She said, I've already spoken to my doctor and she's going to induce me tomorrow to have Lucy. Oh. She goes, I, I think Jared needs something to – he needs something – like this to get him through. Oh, good heavens. So I'm sort of sitting there and I'm like, oh, okay. And the first hospital I went to, they weren't prepared to put off my treatment. They said, no, we need to start tomorrow. And then made a couple of phone calls and got in touch with um, a guy at the Royal Melbourne Hospital by the name of Jeff Sher. And he said, look, Jared's not going to die in three days. But the minute I'm, – I'm happy to delay his treatment, but the minute if he gets a fever – at any time, he's down here with me straight away. No questions asked. And we said, okay. So luckily, you know, Bri got into hospital, had Lucy pretty quickly. I got to spend 12 hours with her and then I was back in the car going back down to Royal Melbourne to, to start my treatment the day after. Can I ask you what those 12 hours were like? Mate, that was very, very emotional. It was, um, you know, I remember she was born, I don't know, it was like 11-something at night on the 10th of March. Mm-hmm. And we got back to the room and normally they don't let you, you know, bath your, your newborn no. for a day or two or whatever. But Slippery little suckers that they are. Yeah. But the nurses there, they knew exactly what was happening with us and they said, look, go and give her a bath and we'll, we'll watch you give her a bath. And, you know, so I got to do all these things that should happen a couple of days mm. after and I'm, I'm getting to do them straight away. And I remember Bri went and had a bit of a sleep and and I just sat there. They wheeled another bed in for me to sleep on and and I just sat there on the bed just staring at Lucy. Don't know what I was thinking about, don't know what I was doing, just staring at her. And then she'd cry and I'd just grab her tummy and I'd sort of rock her a little bit and rub her and she'd go back to sleep and I'm just like, you know, it was the best 12 hours of my life. You know, I've just seen my daughter be born, one that I didn't think was ever going to happen and here she is. And, you know, I jumped in the shower the next morning Hopped in the car, kissed the baby, kissed my wife and said, I'll see you soon. And I didn't know whether I would or I wouldn't. Did you expect to? I was hoping I would, but I didn't know. That was there was just there was just so much unknown and I probably didn't see him for oh geez, it would have been at least three weeks that I didn't get to see him. Because Brian spent a bit more time in hospital. And the nurses and stuff at the Shep Private, they they kept her in hospital because they thought we can't send her home with no one else there. Mm. So she stayed in hospital probably four or five days, four or five days later than than um, than she should have. But so they they were there to help her. So are you are you having treatment or are you having an operation or that's your beautiful daughter in the background? Who's yes, five. There's making making noise. No, she's doing a wonderful wonderful job. Are you having an operation? Or you no treatment. No, so I I'm having treatment at this point. So right when I first went down to the the first hospital I went to, they'd put a um, thing called a Hickman line in my chest. Yep. So I had a 
a, a pipe hanging out of my chest. And so the, all the, the preparations had been done to start the chemo. So I literally just walked into the Royal Melbourne, hopped into bed, and they started the chemo the very next day. So it was – so when, you know, when Bri was in hospital, I was in hospital as well. And, you know, it wasn't – wasn't a great place to be. No. I'll just ask you what, what in your in your lucid moments at that stage when you're sick, on possibly your deathbed. What are you thinking about? You've you've got a a new wife. You've got a tiny little daughter that you've seen for twelve hours. What are you thinking about, mate? Um, mate, it, it, that's the thing. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking about. Yeah. You know, I would, Brian would be sending me pictures during the day of, of Lucy laying in bed asleep and things like this and and I'd sort of be just flicking through my phone or I'd be, you know, talking to someone or I'd be, you know, throwing up or I'd be just, you know, there's always something going on that didn't really give me a chance to sit there and, and think about life, which was probably a good thing that I was busy the whole time and... You know, but but laying there and, and just feeling horrendous and then, you know, when Brian and Lucy finally got to come down to Melbourne, there's nothing I could do. I couldn't change nappies. I couldn't even really hold it because of the chemo that would be seeping out through my skin. I didn't want that to get on, on Lucy and the doctors were saying, well, you know, you've got to be very, very careful with that. So it was, you know, it was just a, a time in my life, mate, that I don't remember a lot about it. And I'm happy that I don't remember a lot about it. How long do you hang on to the can't change the nappies line? Oh, I hung on to it for about eight months until <laughs> my doctor actually, because Brian ask every time, and I'm I like, bet you would. I'm and too then, sick. And then there was a couple of times I actually had, had to go to Melbourne by myself, and she go, "Oh, did you ask Jeff about your um, changing nappies?" Yeah, yeah, no, I asked. <laughs> <laughs> and I never did. <laughs> but then the, the, the time that she actually came down and she she spoke to Jeff about it and said, now, can Jared start changing nappies? And Jeff looks at me and looks at Brian and he goes, I think so. And I've just given him the dirtiest, <laughs> filthiest look he's ever had. And I said, wrong answer, Jeff. But, you know, so, I'm, mate, I'm, I've, I reckon I'm about even with nappies okay. now. You've, I've, I've, I've made up a you're, fair you're bit. Making. And you're, as we speak here, um, your daddy daycare, your yep. beautiful uh, wife's away. You've got the five-year-old here. You've got the very little one who is... Hopefully still sound asleep. How old is she? Uh, she's just gone 10 months. So she's under control in there. So um, does life... This is a really cliched question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Do you view life differently after you've been in a position where it can be taken away from you? Yep. How? I think it gets back to how we sort of started this conversation where uh-huh. my demeanour doesn't change. You know, I don't take things for granted and I never really did. Mm. But I think when you get into this kind of lifestyle, it's very easy to fall in that trap where you take things for granted and you feel privileged and you feel above everyone else. Yeah. I've never had that feeling and I never want to have that feeling. And I think growing up in Shep with all my mates and, and stuff around the golf course and mates at school, that they they would never let me get to that position anyway, even if I did happen to slip into it. Mm-hmm. But you sort of sit here and, and you look at the you look at the things that I've seen in my life. You know, all the positives from playing golf and you know, all the fun stuff that I've done, but then you you turn it around and you see that the people that are dying in the bed next to you that you can't do anything about. And you see 
you know, all these kids that, you know, have have got no idea what's happening to them and there's nothing you can do. So I think, you know, sitting there and seeing all that kind of stuff has made me just appreciate life so much more and just relish the good times and, and if the bad times come, which they have, you just you just flog them aside and you just keep moving on with, with the good stuff that you can do at the time. I've been told by someone um, about a potentially mysterious video that a lot of the PGA pros put together Yep. for you when you're crook. Is that an urban myth or is that a real No, thing? that is a true DVD. Is it? That um, a good friend of mine, Trip Eisenhower, you know, I played a lot with him on the one web.com. One of the great too. names. One of the great names. Yeah, old John Henry the Third. Right. John Henry Eisenhower he is, but right. he likes to be called Trip because he's the third. Okay. Um, so he went to Bay Hill, which is obviously this week as we speak. Yep. Um, I lived a couple of minutes down the road from Bay Hill, and Trip had finished his his playing career and he'd got a job with the Golf Channel, and they're based in Orlando as well. So. He'd organised, without anyone else sort of doing it apart from him and a couple of producers, he organised to have a camera set up on the driving range on Tuesday and Wednesday. And all the players who would walk past, he'd stop them and say, look, Jared's in hospital, do you want to have a quick chat? Jared allowed us to play some of the incredible DVD that Chip Eisenhower put together on our The Moment documentary podcast. Here is the excerpt from that documentary featuring some of the biggest names in the world of sport, starting with the late, great Arnold Palmer. Wish you nothing but the best. Uh, had a little experience myself, and I know that it's not the most pleasant thing in the world, but you'll, you'll handle it very well, and good luck. Hey, Jared, Jim Furyk. Jared, Jason Duffner here. Hey, Jared, this is David Duvall. Hey, Jared, G-Mark here. Hey, Jared, Phil Mickelson here. All right, Jared, Ernie. Uh... You know, Justin Rose came on and goes, hey, Jared, it's Justin Rose. Jared, hey, buddy, it's Rosie. How you doing? Um, obviously, all the boys out here thinking about you, no more so than me and Fooch. Fooch is his caddy, good mate of mine as well. You know, we're thinking about you, and, you know, I just want to let you know that I'm going to give Fooch as much crap as I can while you're not here to do it. So in your absence for the next uh, period of time, be sure to know that I'm going to give Fooch plenty of abuse for you, mate. All right, Jared, Ernie, uh, buddy, we miss you out here, man. I know you you miss home in Australia and all of that, but this is uh, taking it to the extreme, bro. Um, Listen, good luck to you and your family. Um, We're all thinking of you. We miss you out here. You know, all I can say is, you know, keep fighting this thing. I know it must be very hard on you and your family and, uh, you know, good luck and we want to see you out here, big fella. All right, take it easy and, uh, you know, at least you can catch up on your Aussie footy and cricket and all that stuff, the things that you guys aren't that good at. Okay, (laughs) all the best. Good luck, buddy. Cheers. So this video went for 43 minutes or something like that and the first time I saw it, I was in hospital. I brought it in. I played it on my computer in front of me and I cried the whole time through it. Just cried because it was just like these guys are preparing for an event and they're taking, you know, 30 seconds out of their day to come and say hello to me on a camera. You beat it one time, you can beat it again. You're Australian for Christ's sake. You're that tough. I guess what it reaffirmed to me was it's just a massive family that you're out there playing with every single week. Even though you're out there trying to smash them and beat as many players, many of these guys as you can every single week, 
you're still a massive family. You're still travelling together. You're still seeing each other every week. And, you know, to have something like that happen to me and then all of a sudden have the 124 guys that are at Bay Hill that week come and say hello on this camera was incredible. Like, I've got Phil Mickelson sitting there. Hey, Jared, Phil Mickelson here. He goes, get back over here. We need to see you again. Just wanted you to know that us and the tour, everybody here on the tour are really pulling hard for you. Fought it once, and hopefully you'll, you'll get through this, and we're, you've got a lot of people out here pulling for you and wanting you to get back out here soon. You know, Sergio. Hey, Jared. Uh, I just want to say that we're all thinking about you. Uh, we're wishing very well on your uh, fight against leukemia, and uh, we know you're very strong, so we're hoping to see you out here very soon uh, walking the course with us. So uh, take care and uh, see you around. And I showed it to my grandparents, and all my nan can say, she goes, geez, Jared, you've got a lot of nicknames over there. Chancellor. Jared, you bastard. G'day, J-Lo. Hey, Big J. J-Rod. Hey, Santa. Got to have the Chancellor of the uh, Central University of the Northern Territory to hurry, hurry up and get back out here. And... I think it hit me, obviously not having seen the DVD, when Tiger wore your little Luca Duck badge yeah. and Tiger is a brand. If Tiger's wearing a badge, you know, it's a, I'm not sure he's whacking every single cause that comes his way on his jumper, but he, he that, wore your duck. That's the thing with Tiger. He doesn't do that stuff. No. Nah, he doesn't put a badge a, on for somebody. He's it's, too big a brand to be doing that week in, yeah. week out, isn't he? But, you know, luckily for me... Um, one of my old caddies, Mick, um, he knew Tiger's caddy pretty well. Oh, not Tiger's caddy, Tiger's coach, sorry. Right. Knew Sean Foley pretty well, and I knew Sean Foley you know, reasonably well. And he went up to Sean and he goes, look, mate, this is what's happening. All the players are wearing this for Jared. He's back at home and this is what he's dealing with and all that. And Sean's like, don't worry, Tiger will wear it. And I'm like, and, and Mick's like, really? He goes, he'll wear it, don't worry. So, you know, he's, for a guy that doesn't do things like that for everybody, for him to have that duck on his hat yeah. and obviously win that week too, which came, was his first win after all his, you know, indiscretions that he'd had. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a massive thing for me. And, and, and luckily for me, I could get Tiger's phone number because I wanted just to say thank you because I knew that he doesn't do things like that for everybody mm. or for anybody in that fact. But, you know, for him to put that duck on his hat that week and then win, and that was the the, the first thing I saw when he held that putt on the last yeah. hole was the duck on the top of his hat. Me too, me too. And and I knew exactly what it was for and, mate, it was like I'd won that tournament with him. And I wanted to just to let him know what I was feeling and how happy I was and how thankful I was that he'd done that. So I sent him a text and... You know, I, I wasn't expecting to get a thing back. I wasn't even sure if it was the right number <laughs> or whatever. But, you know, three hours after that, I'd sent that text. I'm sitting there, my phone goes off, and it's, it says text message, Tiger Woods. And I'm like, wow. So then we just had a quick, you know, there was probably three or four texts went back and forth from each other, and and that's pretty much the only interaction I've ever had with Tiger. But it was at a time that... I guess for both of us, he'd sort of had a few mm. dark days prior yeah, to that. No doubt, no doubt. And and I was having some dark days during it all and you know, I wanted I just wanted to, to say thank you for what he'd done, you know, for me personally. Mate, you've been extraordinary with your time. And we're an hour in, which will surprise you. Uh, my 
my favourite moment in golf <clears throat> is when you came back to golf. Yeah. Um, was it the Masters? Yes. I'll, mate, I'll probably cry during all this, but yeah, the Aussie Masters 2013. So how long since you'd been let out of hospital would that have been? Uh, I'd been out of hospital for probably 14 months. I don't say that lightly either. It is. I was sitting at home watching it, and it, it's one of the best things I've ever seen in sport, not just golf. I reckon. Yeah. No, it was. It was one of those things that I I was sitting at home, and you know I'd, I'd been playing eighteen holes every couple of weeks at at the Sands here, and you know I'd go out and I'd do a little bit of practice, and you know I wasn't I wasn't back by any stretch of the imagination and but I needed to see something to see how I was progressing with my golf mm. like I'd put a little bit of work in I hadn't put a lot of work into it but I'd done enough to sort of realise that the golf game was still there <laughs> but it was the the rest of the stuff that goes along with it that I needed to see I needed to see whether I could walk 36 holes two days in a row I didn't know whether I could do that because I, I, I was playing in a cart <laughs> So, you know, I needed – there was a lot of things I needed to see and, and I'd spoken to um, my manager about it who, you know, had spoken to IMG and said, look, because I had no status, I needed an invite. And as soon as Dave Rollo heard about it, he's like, mate, whatever you need, let us know, but you're there. You've got to start. So I turned up on the – I think we, we got there on Sunday – and then I was out there Monday and I had my best mate caddy for me and um, couldn't have got anyone better on the bag. You know, someone who'd been there through both my illnesses and, you know, he was just a, just one of my best mates. And we were out there on Monday and we were playing, played nine holes. I thought, I can't do too much. Didn't do much on Tuesday. I was only there for probably two hours maximum at the course. And then on the Wednesday I played the Pro-Am and um, – I'm sitting there and I thought, right, if I make the cutty, I'm playing five days in a row now. I don't know how I'm going to do this. <laughs> anyway, so I get me pairing on, on Tuesday afternoon and I was in the office, in the PGA office talking to somebody and Lang is the guy who does all the pairings and that. He goes, he comes across to me, he goes, who do you want to play with? I said, no, no, mate, no. Just put me wherever. Put me in the back of the field. I don't really care. He goes, no, 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 no. Who do you want to play with? And I said, mate, I don't care. He goes, well, how about I put you with Brendan De Jong and Jeff Ogilvy, marquee group. I'm sitting there going, really? <laughs> Maybe something to touch more like I said, dude, I might miss it on the first tee. He goes, <laughs> I don't care. The million people are going to watch it. They don't care. Yeah. They want to see you. So I said, all right, whatever you want to do. So I rock up on the course Thursday afternoon. Or th- sort of Thursday lunchtime for me tea time and I've gone across to the range and I started warming up and, you know, things are feeling really nervy. I'm shaking. It's like, you know, I've hit a couple of shanks. I've done a couple of things on the range I haven't done for a long time and and then a mate of mine pops his head over the fence and he goes, Jared, there's someone here to see you. And I'll turn around it's Peter Thompson. And Pete's standing behind the, the, um, the range and he comes over, he shakes my hand. And he goes, how are you feeling? I said, mate, I'm nervous as hell. He goes, you're going to win? I said, mate, if I get through four days, it'll be a, an absolute miracle. He goes, it, nah. He goes, you're going to win. 
So I'm going to try, Pete. He goes, that's all I want. Shakes my hand again, says good luck, then shuffles off back to the clubhouse. So he's walked from Royal Melbourne Clubhouse across to the Sandringham where we're using a couple of holes there as a driving range and then shuffle back. Five-time British Open winner. So he's come over there just to say hello and wish me all the best. And I'm like, wow. Hmm. This is obviously bigger than what I think it was. You know, for me it was just another another tournament, another round of golf. But I think for everyone else it was just so much bigger than that. And I remember finishing my warm-up and I thought to myself, well, that was horrendous, but that's all I've got. <laughs> <laughs> now I started walking across there and, and Bri comes over and she goes, how are you feeling? And I just looked at her and I cried. And I'm sort of sitting there going... I don't know why I'm crying. So I took the back way through the like the service entrance at Royal because I just needed five minutes to myself. And then I got on the putting green. I'm having a putt and there's a few guys on there like Ricky Ponting was behind the green as well and, you know, and just all these people that I'd never met and have never met and will probably never meet again mm. saying, you know, all the best, mate, good luck, all this kind of stuff. And, and I started walking across and... I had another little moment. I'll just call them moments now. And I had another little moment before I got onto the walk onto the first tee. Had a bunch of mates that I played a lot of golf with, and a bunch of people from Shepherd come up. And then I get uh, I get onto the tee, and he was the president of the VGA when I was playing state teams and all that. He was the announcer, and he's crying. And and I walked up there. And as soon as I seen that, I started crying as well. And I'm thinking to myself, this is just going to be the worst tee shot ever. Anyway, so I'm standing there and he calls my name. I tee me ball up. I'm just getting really emotional and I stand up there and I hit hybrid and I've hit it straight out of the guts and went down the fairway and I thought to myself, I've done it. You know, something that I never thought I could do again. I've done it. I've teed off. So I hand my club back to Gareth, my caddy, and I just stand on the tee and I just sort of sighed. I'm just like, oh, thank God, it's it's done. You know, the hype, everything that I'd sort of put on myself to hit this tee shot, I'd done it. And then I just lost it again. And I cried and I cried for probably halfway down the fairway. And I'm like, wow. So I ended up making par on the first hole and then I stood up on the second and I'll never forget it. I've hit a drive down the middle of the fairway. I was about 30 yards behind Ogilvy and De Jong. And I'm standing there and, and Gareth says to me, it was it was like 220 metres, second shot on this par five. And he looks at me and he goes, are you going to lay it up? I said, nah. He goes, can you get there? I said, I don't know. I said, but I'm going to try. I've hit it to 15 feet. And when that shot came off, I knew there and then that I could do this again. You know, even though making par on the first was a good start, hitting that second shot on number two that no one really knows about, and I haven't told a lot of people, that that was the shot that really sparked the love for me to come back to playing golf again. And, mate, I made the cut, which I didn't think I was going to do either. So there was a lot of things happening that that first tournament back that 
blew my mind and, and let me know that I could still be a golfer and still do what I wanted to do. And, you know, I was absolutely exhausted when it came Sunday afternoon when I was playing. And I said to Michael Long, the guy I was playing with on Sunday, I said, Longy, I said, I've got to apologise, mate. I said, if I'm slow today, there's nothing I can do about it. I said, I'll be probably be crawling by the end of the round. Mm-hmm. And he goes, Jared, I don't care. I said, I'll just keep out of your way. He goes, no. He said, you do what you got to do. If someone comes over here and tells you that you're too slow, he said, they got me to deal with. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So it was nice to have that, you know, support from your playing partner that day. And, mate, I shot 79 on Sunday and it was the best 79 I reckon I've ever shot. I walked off and I cried because I knew that I still wanted to do it. I knew that I could do it. And, you know, I, you feel like crying after a 79 because how bad it was. <laughs> but this was the best 79 anyone's ever shot. So I was pumped. Mate, thanks for describing that in the detail you did. I thought you got through that pretty well. Yeah. yeah you had a couple of moments as you Yeah, just there. a little moment, mate. It was... You nearly got me there at one point, <laughs> which wouldn't have been good if we were both in tears. So well, it's, mate, the, the funniest thing out of it all is Langers again. He goes... He said, I'll hate you forever. I said, why is that? He goes, because you're the only man that's ever made me cry at a golf tournament. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he said, my my reputation has been shot because of you. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, mate, it, it meant a lot to a lot of people and I probably didn't grasp the severity of it as well as I should have but you know it meant a lot to me but I think everyone else in the world that witnessed it and people that were dealing with the same thing or similar issues to what I was dealing with I I don't know it gave them hope it let them know that there was still a chance for them to get out and do what they want to do so we sit here now part way through 2017 um, and you made an announcement in recent times that you're home now you're not going back to the US at this particular point of time to try and continue to play golf over there. Why did you make that decision? Was it a hard decision to make? <clears throat> no, mate, it wasn't. Actually, looking at you now with your beautiful daughter sitting on your knee, I guess it's yeah. probably a pretty easy decision. It, it was. It was a very easy decision because that decision was ultimately made in 2012. Right. That you know, I said back then from the very start that golf was the furthest thing from my mind. Back then, if I never got back to hit another golf shot in a tournament in the States in Australia anywhere in the world I could walk away from the game and be very happy with what I've achieved you know I've won two tournaments in the States Mm. you know I've done things that you know I only dreamed of doing and you know when the the time came the end of last year and I realised that I'd played my last medical exemption I didn't have enough money up to have any status on the PGA Tour. I've got very, very limited status on the web tour this year as well through being a past champion Mm. Um, and sitting there going, well, I don't know when my starts are going to come up. I might only get three events this year and I don't want to be sitting over there the whole time waiting for it. I just thought the time's right. You know, the time's right to come home now and – and be a dad and be a husband and, and be someone who's, you know, around here more often, you know, can can work with our business a little bit more, can, you know, take the girls to, you know, kinder and daycare and pick them up and cook dinners and, 
you know, the things that I've missed out on for so long. And the things you can never get back when they're 15 and 16 yeah. and 18. You know, and, and have the have it now where Lucy can, you know, we can play together on the floor and, you know, I can take her out and play golf at home or I can take her down the street or take her to the skate park and, you know, do things that I guess everyday dads get to do. Mm. And they're the things that I was missing out on because I'll be over in the States for three months leaving, you know, the girls here by themselves. So it was, in the end, it was a very easy decision to make. It was was hard shutting the door in Orlando for the last time and, and walking away from the house, but, you know, because of the memories that we've got in that house. But the time was right to do it and, mate, I, I don't regret doing it. We are getting to the end of this and it always finishes Listeners of the Howie Games will know that I have two children. The Pickle, who's seven. Yep. And the Big Penguin, who named himself that. A the Pickle years ago. and the Big Penguin. Uh, he's five. We always finish this, and your daughter will like this. I tell uh, my guest who's coming on, I tell him a little bit about it, and then the Pickle and the Big Penguin prepare a question, which they did this morning over their breakfast on the way Fantastic. to school. Fantastic. Would you like to handle the Big Penguin or the Pickle first? What do you reckon, Lucy? The pickle or the big penguin? Big penguin. Big, big penguin. penguin. Is, yes, the ladies do tend to like him. Hi, Jared. Big penguin here. I can hit my golf ball 20 metres. How far can you hit your golf ball? He likes his stats. He wants a number. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, 20 metres. Yeah, that's um, bouncing along the road as well. It must be said. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll give him. I'll give him uh, my longest ever yes. recorded drive. This is what he wants: three hundred and seventy-five yards. So in meters, it's about three hundred and forty-eight-ish. Did you run that down a cart path or not? Yes, but it was a recorded drive <laughs> that went three hundred and seventy-five yards. <laughs> I will let him know. I will let him know. Shall we hear the pickles question now? Let me see. We got the pickle. Here we go. Hi, Jared. Pickle here. Once we went to putt-putt and Mummy cracked it because she couldn't get it in the hole. Do you ever crack it when you're playing golf? Yes. Yes. I do. I've actually got a very funny putt-putt story. Good. Because this is how he just about wrapped a putt-putt club round (laughs) the tree at the Big Penguin's (laughs) fifth birthday. Okay. Well, I have seen Colin Swatton, Jason's caddy. Yes. Um hit a golf ball from a putt-putt course out onto the road in anger. (laughs) I have snapped the head off a putt-putt putter at Pirates Cove in Orlando. I'm going to name them so they can come after me. What happened to Mr. Carmen? It will be. And I have seen former world number one Jason Day throw a putter into a fake (laughs) volcano at another uh, another putt-putt in Orlando. So we do get angry. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's the fact that you know, top class golfers are absolutely woeful when it comes to putt putt. Right. So we do get angry. Mate, thank you so much for the last hour and 17 minutes. You're obviously daddy daycare. You're answering questions. You've been extremely honest and open with me. And I think a lot of people will be touched by your story, mate. And I'm sure people will listen out there that are crook, et cetera, um, or having a bad day and they'll think, oh, well, it's okay. Yep. So that's a that's a good gift you can give to people, mate, and I really appreciate you sitting down and having a chat with us. Mate, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Cool. How do you think your dad went? Good? Yeah, I think he went good too. Where's your voice? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 
please visit challenge.org.au to show them your support, as well as the Jared Lyle GoFundMe page. To Jared's family, our thoughts are with you and will always be with you. Rest easy, big fella. Rest easy. Listener.